You've dreamed of building a family, but the journey hasn't been easy. I'm Dr. Laura Shaheen, a reproductive endocrinologist helping people build families every day. On our new podcast, Baby or Bust, we'll be learning from both reproductive experts and people who have faced challenges just like yours. Join us every week for Baby or Bust, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to follow us so you never miss an episode. Today on the Zabecast, the Patriots do what the Patriots do, and we'll talk about how they do it better than everyone else. The Brady injury, bad calls, and more. Eagles swamp the Vikings. We got Troy Aikman sound, Tony Romo sound, and some constructive criticism. All that and why political hot takes on Facebook might just be worse than herpes. You got 45 minutes to kill, then buckle up, and let's go! Oh, here we go. And so we've got ourselves a Super Bowl, everybody. Patriots and Eagles. We will run it back again from 2004. New England, a five and a half point favorite to open Super Bowl LII in Minneapolis. Hello and welcome to the Zabecast for a Monday, January 22nd, 2018. Uh, like I said, Patriots minus five and a half uh, in what should be, I think, a very interesting game could be a very interesting game i would not once again rule out the mighty underdogs from philadelphia pulling the stunner upset i think that uh yesterday said a lot of things about a lot of things so let's start with the patriots first and foremost when the patriots were down 20 to 10 with about 10 minutes to go in the fourth quarter i believe i saw some stat that said the win probability for Jacksonville was like 93%. I think Darren Ravel tweeted that out. Now, we've talked about win probabilities and that kind of stuff, and whether you believe in them or you think they're just stupid and you're done with even hearing about them, whatever. It's my understanding that they use these win probabilities based on a global data set of how many games have been a 10-point lead with 10 minutes to go, which team, you know, how many times does the team that's down 10 come back to win? And I guess the global stat on that is, you know, only 7% of the time. But it's different when you've got Brady, and it's different when you're the Patriots, and it's different when they've been in this spot time and time again. And so, to me, the win probability was nowhere near 93%. In fact, it was no better than 50-50, 50%. Or as Spurrier would say, yep, at hindsight's 50-50. I'd say it was no better than 50-50 that the you know, Patriots would win or lose at that point. Do I have my Spurrier here? Yeah, I think actually that was pretty stupid. No. Yeah, thank you. Uh, appreciate that. Sunshine follows the mm-hmm. Gators. Yeah, no, there's that. Yeah, Shane uh, threw around uh, pretty well today. So, uh, yeah, he's all set to go. There's uh, a Spurrier. Hopefully he doesn't get banged too hard. If he does, he might be out for a while. What we need to do, though, we need to throw completions, make first downs, and move the ball. We don't need to be three and out. I mean, we've been pitiful, so we need to try to make something happen. Pitiful. I'm sort of learning as I go. Yep. I think we just got to go play. That, that, that go play bite was from the preseason where Spurrier, because he had been in college so long as a coach, he's like, yeah, um, I'm sick of these preseason games. When are we going to actually play real games? That was after, I think, the second preseason game. Imagine Spurrier coaching when they had six preseason games. Oh, yes, kids, hop up here onto Uncle Stevie's knee. 
and take a listen to a tale. Once upon a time back in the 70s, they had six preseason games. And yes, they would once upon a time uh, go out, like the Redskins would go out to train in California, and they would literally pick up players uh, on the way out. Like the train would go all the way across the country, and they would stop across the country and go, yeah, meet the Redskins train like in Omaha, and we'll put you on, we'll go out there, and we'll practice in California. True story. Ancient times in the NFL in the late 60s and early 70s. Okay, we, uh, we now resume our regularly scheduled Zabecast here about the Patriots. Yeah, that was weird, man. What was all the Spurrier stuff? Oh, because I was talking 50-50. Not only was it no better than 50-50 that the Jaguars would win that game just because they were up 10 with 10 minutes to go, I think any one of us who has been paying attention the last 17 years knew what was coming. We saw, we knew what, we, we just, let's not kid ourselves. You knew the Patriots would win that game. And sure enough, the Patriots came on and basically swamped them. As more as, as Doug Marone and the Jags got more and more conservative, the Patriots started pressing it up. Now, granted, they had to get some huge breaks along the way. And the Miles Jack fumble and quick whistle is going to be talked about for some time. While we're on that, let's talk referees for a second. Okay, a lot of people making a big deal about the 6-1 to disparity in penalties. A lot of people citing the last time that a team was only assessed one accepted penalty in a championship game like the Patriots were. A lot of people making a big deal of Cleet Blakeman patting Brady on the back after the game was over. A lot of people making a big deal about uh, back judge, not not uh, Pete, not Steratore. Gene St- that was Gene Ster- Steratore's brother, by the way, that's in that clip of him smiling and laughing amidst the celebration. And he's good, like his brother. But it's a bad look. And it's a bad look as well for Cleet Blakeman. He should never ever be doing that. The league should swoop in and either fine Blakeman or reprimand him or something because you're not Tom Brady's bro. You're not like, hey, man, great game. Pat on the back. Well done. All right. You're the best. You're fucking referee, okay? You're there to call the game correctly as best you can and not fuck it up. So that's a terrible look right there. They can't have that. But a bad look is different from a rigged game or bad officiating. And yes, the quick whistle on the Miles Jack fumble recovery definitely swung the game. No question about it. But guess what? So did the quick whistles by old, uh, uh, what's his name, in the Chiefs-Titans game. So these things happen. This is, again, my main argument against replay. Replay can't get everything right. They did look on replay to confirm there was a fumble. And you're like, well, at least they gave him the ball back. They didn't do anything with it. But they didn't fix the essential problem, which was the actual true play was fumble, recovery, not down by contact, clear sailing, would have easily been a fumble six. Well, don't you want to get some things right? Uh, No. No, I'd rather have everything be wrong and let the wrong balance each other out and then go quicker and to not have all these needless delays. Because this was still an injustice that replay could not fix. A quick whistle. Unless you want to start awarding touchdowns on, oh yeah, he wasn't touched, and he definitely would have scored, so touchdown Jacksonville. So that's going to be talked about for some time. The pass interference on Boye was a marginal pass interference. Came at a really good time for the Patriots, obviously. The hit by... Church on Gronk is being talked about and will be talked about for quite a while. I saw where uh, 
Richard Sherman. Old Dick Sherman made sure to tweet out right away, see, that play, you can't make that play any other way unless he goes at the knees of Gronk and everybody labels, labels him a, ba- a, bad, a dirty player. To which I immediately thought, but didn't tweet at Richard Sherman because I just don't care to be confrontational on Twitter. You don't? Really? You're not doing it right then. I thought to myself, oh, oh, that is rich. The Seahawks now care about knees. The same team that had Michael Bennett go at the knees of the Jacksonville Center as they were getting their ass handed to him at the end of the game. Oh, all of a sudden, a Seahawk is worried about somebody else's knees. Oh, oh, wow. Okay, got it. Fact of the matter is, there's a lot of ways to play that play on Gronk and to not hit him in the helmet. And I saw where Jason Whitlock tweeted, and he's been big on this. That's a good football play. He led with his shoulder. There was helmet-to-helmet contact, but so be it. That's a good football play. Well, in the old days, yeah. It was. The league, though, is, is legislating that particular play out of the game. And even if you don't like it, it's what they're doing. You better adjust. You'd be better off adjusting. Now, it was actually a, a hit well worth the 15 yards to knock Gronk out of the game. And, of course, I think my best tweet of the day, if you follow me on Twitter, and you should, at Zabe, was, ooh, this is tough. How do you differentiate Gronk concussion symptoms with Gronk Gronk symptoms. And, of course, people, a few smarty pants said, there's baseline tests. Don't you know that? I'm like, yeah, 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 I know that. But other people had creative responses saying, okay, Gronk, you have 15 minutes to get to a strip club. You only have one car, however, and you have five people who want to go with you. The strippers are going to go on their lunch break in 20 minutes, yet you want to get at least two lap dances. What's your best course of action? If he can answer that, then he's okay. If he's confused, then the answer is no, he's concussed. I honestly was shocked they let him back in the game. I thought for sure they were going to give him the old blue miracle tent treatment of, yeah, he's fine, let him back out there. I'm assuming two weeks should be enough for him to be ready for the Super Bowl. I'd be shocked if he wasn't. Speaking of injuries... The Tom Brady injury. My take on the Brady injury is simply this, and I said this as well on Twitter, and some people didn't get my point. There's a difference between following the letter of the law regarding reporting injuries. Tom Brady hand, limited participant in practice, or non-participant. That's the letter of the law. And then there's the spirit of the rule, which says you're supposed to be at least somewhat transparent about injuries. And the fact that nobody knew what was wrong with his hand, it started out with, well, he might have got an x-ray. And then it was, oh, he cut his hand on the buckle of Rex Burkhead's helmet. And then I saw my friend Dr. Chow on Twitter say, that doesn't add up because, one, the buckles on helmets are sanded and smoothed down. by the ma- They're machined down to have smooth edges. It's pretty hard to get a laceration like that. And secondly, why would Brady's hand be near Burkhead's helmet on a handoff in practice? So that didn't make sense. Then we find out much later, and not until we get to the day of the game, that he had this inside-out tear of the skin on his thumb and forefinger because his thumb and forefinger got bent back and it ripped the skin. A potentially very nasty, very serious, very grip-changing and game-changing injury, but, well, it didn't seem to affect him one bit. Now, did it? Okay. So my point is just this. The NFL instituted these injury reports 
and this system of you know, being transparent or pseudo-transparent for one reason and one reason only, gambling. They wanted to keep the NFL gamblers and bookies and other nefarious types from putting clubhouse assistants on their payroll. Hey, Jimmy, tell me what's going on with uh, Gronk's hand or Gronk's leg or, or Brady's thumb. Here's a, here's a hundred for you. Okay, see what you got. Go snooping around. The NFL decided wisely it's better to be honest and forthcoming with injuries so that we don't have these people trying to get an edge finding things out that the general public does not know. Because, oh, by the way, the line did drop at least two full points from nine, nine and a half down to seven based on the Brady injury. And so my argument was, does the NFL care about enforcing the at least spirit of their rule regarding injuries? And shouldn't the Patriots be required to disclose a little bit more like he jammed his thumb in practice, he had x-rays, they were negative, he suffered a cut that required six stitches, he is limited in practice. Don't you think that should be something the NFL would want teams to be obliged to report? You don't have to say how he's feeling on a day-to-day basis. You don't have to give him grip strength tests and say, well, he's got 6.2 newtons of grip strength, his normal grip strength is 9.7, so he's clearly not there yet. You don't have to be that forthcoming, but don't you at least have to say, here was the injury? I guess the answer is no, or I guess the answer is the NFL is not going to go and enforce that kind of stuff. Once upon a time, the Redskins with Joe Gibbs would stash guys on the injured reserve with literally nothing more than a hangnail as an injury. And I believe that they started to crack down on that because they were able to use the injured reserve as a sort of taxi squad of extra players to hold on to. So, you know, the dance has to continue between the league and the teams as to what they report and how they report it, but obviously the Patriots pushed the envelope right to the very edge. My comparison would be, let's say Tom Brady sliced open his thumb and severed a tendon while making a delicious avocado smoothie milkshake. And let's say the Patriots did not disclose that all week long. And let's say that they claimed he was a participant in practice, but in reality, he only threw the ball left-handed as he was writhing in pain from his right hand, having severed a tendon where there's no way he was going to be able to play. And let's say Sunday finally comes, and Tom Brady is out there in a cast, and he's not going to play, and they go, well, yeah, he didn't recover from his injury in time, so it's going to be Hoyer. And then the media goes, what happened? And that's when the Patriots go, oh, yeah, he sliced open a tendon, cutting, him, you know, cutting an avocado for a delicious smoothie with Giselle, and he may never play again because it's a serious injury to a crucial tendon in his throwing hand. But we follow the rules of the injury report. Again, I don't care. I don't have any right to know as a member of the public. Not a right to know. I'd like to know. If I'm betting on the game, I would want to know. But I'm just wondering, does the league say to itself, we've got to do a little better about obliging teams to be honest about the injuries. That said, Brady is hes the GOAT. He's the fucking GOAT. He's amazing. He is absolutely unbelievable. Patriots overall are also unbelievable. Everything they do, all the little things which lead to the big things, it's better than everybody else. It just is. You can hate them all you want. You can call them cheaters, which they kind of have been, but they do everything better. And case in point, let's just go through the ways they're better. They're better finding personnel that they like, that they know 
are going to be productive players in their system and in their building. Amendola is another example. Fuck, Amendola is amazing. He is like that dog that catches every Frisbee, no matter how far you throw it, no matter how far it's curving, no matter how high it is. He caught everything. That guy is a quintessential football player. I remember when he was on the Rams and the Patriots, and by the, that was his third team, the Rams, and he became a free agent, and the Patriots went right after him with a substantial free agent offer. And they had already had Wes Welker, another Texas Tech short, under six-foot, whitey, zip-zap guy with great hands. So they layer in another guy in Amadola with Welker, and I remember at the time. Actually, let me go back to Welker for a second. I remember when they traded for Welker from Miami, and they gave up a second-round pick. And I was like, what are they doing? Really? But they knew. They knew what kind of guy they wanted. They knew the value of a guy that can run sharp, quick, zip-zap routes and catch everything and is tough. And that was the, the Welker mold. And they went and got a clone of Welker and Amendola. And he's had injuries and you know hamstring and quad and stuff and soft tissue stuff. And he's been out for periods at a time. And he kind of disappears for a while. But that guy, what a game. Every single catch. Tough catches, diving catches, catches behind him. Absolute rock solid. And the touchdown catch to win the game, unbelievable. Unbelievable, except I saw a report that said, oh, well, they practice this all the time. Brady and his receivers practice back of the end zone, tap taps, feet downs all the time. Brady threw that ball at Mach 4, you know, pretty high up in the air. And he knew that it was not Gronk back there. But it was a 5'11 guy in Amendola, and he did not even flinch. He's like, boom, here it is. On a rope, 100 miles an hour, bang, catch, two feet down, touchdown. Control, survive the ground, touchdown. So they get players that they know are going to be better players for them. This is, by the way, with Edelman, the third of the under-six-foot white guy, zip-zap clan, that can go and catch everything in sight. And why do I say white guy? Someone on Twitter. Well, I don't know what his race has to do with it. It's just, it's a nod to the fact that, you know, uh, as, as a white guy, I can speak as a white guy, we don't mind celebrating our overachievers, our guys of, I don't want to say modest athletic ability because none of those guys, Edelman, Welker, Amendola, are modest athletically. They're sick. In fact, I saw one Patriot say, Amendola's a fucking beast. He's, I'm sorry for swearing, but he is a fucking animal that guy it was a black guy and that's what i love about sports in the nfl they don't care white guy black guy i just say a white guy because the league is what 68 percent, 72 percent african-american and it's nice to see guys that look like dudes who could grow up in my neighborhood uh succeeding at a sport that is very very competitive very vicious and is tough to make no matter what race you are but it does make me wonder so You've got white wide receivers all over the league kicking ass. And yet, white running backs, white tailbacks, aside from Christian McCaffrey, he's the only one. And white cornerbacks? No. It would seem logical that if you've got white wide receivers who can excel, why wouldn't there be some white DBs who could also excel as well? It's quite possible they get weeded out of the position growing up through the ranks and coming up from you know, junior high, high school football, etc., but I've always found that kind of interesting. So if you're okay with me talking about race just briefly, I mean, 
no big deal. Amendola, beast. Fits their scheme. Knows, they, they, they know what to do. The Harrison thing is another thing that's amazing. James Harrison with several key pressures and the key sack that led to the 3rd and 18, or was it a 4th and 8? Yeah, 3rd and 18 that led to a 4th and 12 that led to the end of the game. They pick him up. The, the Steelers are idiots. Tomlin is an idiot. James Harrison may have been a pain in the ass to deal with, but hey, put him on the field. This guy can still play. It's amazing. The Patriots are able because their culture is better than everyone else's. Their scheme is better than yours. Their game day tactics are better than yours. Taking care of the little things, they're better than you. They're able to bring in malcontents that would otherwise divide a locker room, and they fall into line, whether it's Harrison, James, whether it's Moss, Randy, whether it's Dylan, Corey, and on down the line. Sickening. Truthfully, I mean, it's sickening, but it's amazing, and I at least have an incredible appreciation for it. So, yeah, the Eagle or so the uh, Patriots got the benefit of some calls yet again, um, and people are going to talk about that. But let's be honest, you're up twenty to ten with ten minutes to go. Close the fucking game. All right, Doug Marone. Okay, Blake Bortles. Close the game. Same thing with you're up at the end of the first half. You got fifty eight seconds to go, and you've got two timeouts. Don't just take knees. Be in it to win it. You weren't in it to win it. And you, you play the play calling, and I know you're trying to be smart about it, basically screamed, is the game over yet? Is, the, is, is it over yet? Have we won yet? And the answer is no. When you come at Brady and Belichick, you better come at them, and you better lop off the head. You better finish the job, and they didn't. So tough one for the Jaguars. It's popular to say, oh, they're going to be back. What a bright future. Truth is. I could see them missing the playoffs next year. Uh, yeah, the entire uh, playoffs. Uh huh. We'll talk about playoffs. You yes. kidding me? Sorry. Playoffs. Yes. Think about it. If Andrew Luck comes back from his shoulder surgery, and if Josh McDaniels starts doing wonders with him as their first year coach, and those are two big ifs, by the way. If Deshaun Watson comes back healthy and the Texans are good again defensively, and JJ Watt comes back and Whitney Merciless comes back, and let's say Watson picks up right where he left off and suffers no setback mobility-wise, confidence-wise, then just getting out of the division for the Jaguars is going to be tough. And I'm not even mentioning the Titans, obviously, who are going to be a handful with whoever is going to be their new head coach. I guess Mike Vrabel is uh, the guy now. The league is a year-to-year league. And as good as this pop-up story was for the Jaguars, they could easily turn back into a bit of a pumpkin next year. And Blake Bortles could easily regress again. Of course, if they go after Cousins. Oh, oh. Well, the Vikings may go after Cousins. Oh, oh. You know, I didn't really think much about the Vikings until Charge told us right here on the Zabecast last week. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's being talked about. And, yes, the Vikings have the fifth most projected cap space. Granted, they've got three quarterbacks they've got coming off the books. Bradford, Keenum, and Bridgewater. They're all coming off the books. So they've got to pay at least one of them something. And there was talk that they may franchise Case Keenum. Now, that's interesting because people scoff at the notion. Keenum had a great year, but let's be honest, you saw what he was in the crucible of the moment on Sunday in Philadelphia. He's not that good. 
Certainly not a guy that you want to franchise. That said, the franchise tag can be a placeholder. It can be a placeholder to you to just saying, okay, here's our, here's our backup plan. We're going to franchise tag him, and we're going to work out a long-term deal. And then they've got some play there. I could easily see the Redskins franchising Cousins, the Vikings franchising Keenum, the Redskins saying, well, you want to go pay Cousins through the roof, go for it. We're not close to winning like you are. We don't think he's that good, privately, but maybe you do. So you have Cousins. We'll take Keenum. We'll sign Keenum to a reasonable deal, which he'll be happy with. It's not going to be franchise tag numbers. And we'll let him start anew here in Washington. And we're going to get, let's say, a second-round pick from you. That's a deal that's plausible. So the franchise tag for Keenum could be a placeholder. The complicating part is what if he signs it and then says, oh, no, I'd want to play at this number and then test the waters again next year. A lot of moving parts. It's going to be a very interesting offseason. Troy Aikman. Can we talk about Troy for a hot second? Troy Aikman, the man, is probably a great guy. Probably a lovely chap. I say none of this about Troy Aikman, the man. I say it about Troy Aikman, the analyst. Troy Aikman, the analyst, to me, is nails on a chalkboard. I cannot hate him as an analyst any more than I do. He is. He, he really ruins my enjoyment of games with his sort of meandering, quasi-monotone, predictable cadence every single play. I'm not a fan. Some people are. So be it. That said, this was the dumbest thing I think I heard all weekend long, and it was after the Thielen touchdown on fourth and goal, which, by the way, the Vikings should have kicked a field goal because, let's see, you need three touchdowns and a field goal. You need all those things? Well, get the field goal because getting a touchdown on fourth and goal from the eight is a low percentage play. But, okay, whatever. Somebody can explain that to Mike Zimmer later. Aikman, after the touchdown on on review, uh, after they saw the replay on TV, were like, oh, this one's not going to stand. Here's what Aikman had to say. Watch this ball bounce right. The ruling on the field is touchdown, but that will not stand up. Well, the good news for the Eagles is they ruled it a touchdown, so now it gets reviewed automatically rather than Doug Peterson having to challenge the call. At this point, I'm saying... What the hell did you just say? So you're gl- so late. So wait, if it was ruled incomplete and turnover on downs, Doug Peterson would challenge that? The answer is, of course not. Aikman started out with that, and, dis- and at some point, either he realized it and just figured, well, I-, I can't stop now. And Joe Buck has this awkward pause. You're going to hear it. In fact, I'll count the seconds that it lasts, in which you know Joe Buck wanted to say, well, yeah, Troy, but if it was incomplete, they wouldn't challenge. Minnesota would have to challenge, and they would lose that challenge. Buck wanted to say that, I'm sure, but didn't because he didn't want to show up his buddy and broadcast partner. Okay, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So they'll review Ten. it. Okay. <laughs> and then Buck's like, so they'll review it. Buck didn't even want to go there. And I listened keenly the rest of the way to say, are they going to go back and revisit that? Is Troy going to make at least some joke about, yeah, you know what, Joe? I got caught up in the moment. Uh, obviously, no. It, uh, 
it was going to work out either way for the Eagles, and they didn't have to worry about it. He didn't. Because I think Troy Aikman is sensitive to being called a bit slow and a bit of a dummy or have people like me say that the early onset CTE is really starting to set in. And I don't mean that to be cruel or, or, or a dick, but it's a genuine fear. I mean, his career was ended on a wicked hit from LeVar Arrington. Like I said, Troy Aikman, the fella, probably a great guy. I, I don't know him. I haven't met him. Troy Aikman, the analyst, terrible. And, in fact, you compare that to Romo and the gap between ex-Cowboy quarterbacks, I think, is getting wider and wider. Speaking of Romo, not everyone loves Romo. Some think, people think Romo is too chatty. Some people think Romo likes to just call out the plays before they happen, like it's a game of uh, you know bar trivia. Or what is it, QB1, I believe, was the trivia game that was played in bars? Whatever. Also, some people don't like how giddy Romo can be during the game. I'm okay with it for the record, but here is what the critics are talking about. Right in the hands. That ends the completion streak at 12 and now from 54 yards. Oh, boy. Yep. Field position, everything points. This is huge, Jim. Make it. You got a seven-point lead. Miss it. Patriots take over at the 44. Okay, he's excited. There was 10 minutes to go in the third quarter, and it was a field goal. Come on, Romo. Ooh, boy. Oh, boy. Yep. Field position, everything points. This is huge, Jim. Make it. You got a seven-point lead. Miss it. Patriots take over at the 44. He's excited. I think most people would say I'd rather him be excited and normal and more like a fan than Troy Aikman is, which is a robot, a cliche-spewing, fourth-down-and-challenge, not-understanding robot. Here was another one from yesterday. Oh, here we go. Uh, there's this one. Now it was threaded right under the hands of Amendola. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 ah. yeah, that's a catch. I know they called it a catch. Some good sound effects, but I, <laughs> I didn't see anything there. So, yeah, yeah, uh, again. I'm a fan of Romo. Don't take me posting any of these on Twitter as me being anti-Romo. And for you Cowboy fans, you're a Redskin fan, you're biased. Uh, Really? Really? You're going to play that card? I don't think so. So on we go to the Super Bowl. I'm looking forward to it. I'll be there Wednesday through the game, and then I'm flying back Monday morning early. A number of people have said, Zabe, are you going to offer us a chance to do a meet and greet? And my answer to that is, if I get enough people that say, oh, hell yeah, I'm at least somewhere in the area, and I'll come by and have some wings and a beer with you. If I get enough, and I'm thinking at least a dozen, because I don't want to be there by myself looking sad with my two fans. If we get at least a dozen, then maybe I'll see if I can't hustle something up. Let's end with this today. I am not on Facebook. I have a Facebook page. I really don't check it more than once a month, maybe. And every time I go to Facebook, I quickly realize just the how and the why that I hate it so much. And for those of you that are on Facebook all the time and love it and it's a great tool for your business or uh, you, you enjoy keeping up with family members, that, that's great. That's great. I'm, I am not judging at all. I know some people 
use it, and it's a joy, and they wonder, they, they, it's a wonderful thing in their life, and that's great. Me, I just find it to be a case of I log on and I see people I've decided to follow, or friend, I guess would be the term on Facebook. A lot of them are high school friends, and I guess I got bullied by the algorithm into following my high school friends just to sort of like, oh, yeah, what's Lisa Mori doing these days? And I quick, re- quickly realized as I watch my high school friends and their families as they grow up, two things. One, they're getting older. I'm getting older. That does not make me happy. And it's a stark reminder seeing my high school friends get old with kids. Secondly, many of my high school friends have wonderful families, at least the way they look on Facebook. And they go to wonderful places. And they like to take photos about it. And they have their friends go, oh, that's so great. I hope you're having a great time. And there's nothing wrong with going to nice places with your family. I've taken my family to a lot of nice places. But when I see it, I instantly kind of get jealous. And I instantly kind of say, or actually envious would be the word, not jealous. I'm trying to learn to get those two straight. And I would say, okay, that's great. You're at uh, the Australian Open, and there's a picture of you with your kid. Okay, great. I'm not at the Australian Open. I'm not having a great time. I'm here freezing my ass off in D.C. working. But okay, that's great. We've got to get over that, Zabe. That's, that's a you problem. Oh, I know it's a me problem. I'm just saying that Facebook exacerbates it. So there is the, hey, look at my wonderful family doing wonderful things post on Facebook. There is the, oh, my insert relative dog, pet, or something is deathly sick with a horrible disease post. And that doesn't make me feel particularly great either. Then there's advertisements for stuff. And then there is political rants. And those are the ones that on Facebook instantly send me over the edge. And the example that I give was just this weekend, my wife, who is on Facebook a lot, and she seems to like it, and that's great, sends me a screenshot on my phone saying, oh, look at this post from your mom about the government shutdown. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. And so I go and I look at the post, and it's my mom giving her best scalding hot take on who's to blame in the government shutdown. My mom is a Democrat, believe it or not. My, my father is a Republican. I am a conservative who votes Republican, like rooting for a bad football team, uh, but with some wild, untamable um, libertarian streaks in my hair. So that's the creature I am politically, but I don't try to shove it down anyone's throat. And I think you people know from listening to me over the years which way I lean on this, but okay. So my mom's a Democrat, and I don't know how she became a Democrat or when. Maybe she's been all her life. She is the daughter of a retired Brooklyn fire chief. My grandfather, Nick O'Neill, a great man, retired from the Boston, or not the Boston, from the Brooklyn Fire Department as a fire chief in his early 50s, got all those pensions and benefits, moved his family out to Arizona where, you know, in Phoenix, it was very underdeveloped at the time. Uh, bought some land out there, some real estate, uh, turned that into a really nice amount of money. Not not a fortune, but he, he did very well in that regard and ended up paying for the college education of all of his grandkids, of which I was one. It allowed me to go out of state to UC Santa Barbara and when my parents otherwise would have probably said you can pick any school you want in state in Virginia because we're not going to pay 
to send you out of state. So my grandfather, Nick Nick O'Neill, Irish-American immigrant, son of an Irish-American immigrant, I think the generation ahead of him, that, that's probably, I guess, where my mom gets her leanings. Also, she, my mom is a former teacher, so being that the teachers' union is staunchly Democratic, that's where she gets it. But listen, we don't, my mom and I, we don't talk politics, and I know where she stands. But in the past, it was always, my only intersection with my mom in politics was at election night when I'd come over to watch with my dad and hoot and holler at the results coming in state by state. And my mom would, you know, have to retire upstairs because she didn't want to hear it, especially when things weren't going well for her precious team donkey. And that was the extent of the interaction. Let me tell you, I do not like seeing hot takes about government shutdowns from my mom. Even if she was on the right, not the right side, even if she was on my side of things. And by the way, I don't even have a side in the shutdown. These things have been going on in D.C. my whole life. And they're a completely backward-ass way to do business. Yes, all parties should be ashamed. It's akin to you fighting with your sister or brother as a kid. You're literally like wrestling over a box of Cheerios. And you rip the bag or the box apart and they spill all over. And then it becomes, look what you made me do. You didn't make me do that. I had it first. That's the equivalent of government shutdowns. No matter who's necessarily in power, uh, in which branch of the government, and even by wading into this, I know you are going to want to set me straight. You are dying to change my mind to say, but you see, well, technically, it really is the Republicans' fault because they do control that. And then the people say, you don't get it because they don't control 60 votes, and this is on Chuck Schumer, and how about the hypocrisy? I don't care. I'm not getting into it. The government is going to start up again. Eventually, a week, two weeks, two days, who knows? As I'm taping this, maybe the government has started up again. Who knows? Whatever. My dad, by the way, used to work for the government, Department of Agriculture. So there. Yes, a government worker who was a Republican. I know. He's a unicorn, right? A very unusual guy. So anyway, my mom's hot take was directed at Barbara Comstock, who happens to be the uh, you know, Virginia uh, House of Delegates. Virginia, no. The U.S. U.S. Congress, House of Representatives, District 10 representative, Republican Barbara Comstock. She's my rep, and she's my mom and dad's rep as well because the 10th District, I mean, I live 45 minutes away from my mom. Districting in politics is another thing that you could spend hours talking about, whether it's stupid or brilliant or a mix of the two, whatever. You look at the 10th District, it snakes all over the place, all the way out to my house. So I guess my mom was posting on Facebook a response to something that Barbara Comstock on her Facebook page said about the government shutdown, and it was just the hottest of hot, you know, Facebook, political, Internet takes. And seeing my mom do that was so unsettling because everything in my body wanted to say, shut the fuck up. (laughs) And I love my mom. I don't ever want to say that to mom. I never have said that to mom. My mom, I never will say that to my mom. But because that was the venue in which she felt obliged to shoot that in there, that was my first reaction. And I hated it. And I hope that my wife does not show me anymore. And this is why I stay off of Facebook. No matter how many wonderful pictures my mom does post of our grandkids, of, of my kids and her grandkids on Facebook, 
and all the gingerbread house buildings that she organizes and everything else. She's an incredible grandmother, incredible mom, incredible woman. But it's the hot takery that I could do without. In fact, I would say I would have rather have seen my mom naked <laughs> coming out of the shower than see her hot take about the shutdown. But that's just me. Mom, if you're listening, I love you dearly. And stay politically active all you want. You fire in those takes. You call your representative. You tell him or her what a bag of shit they are. How they need to get off their ass and govern this country right. It's your, it's your right as a citizen, as a voter, as a taxpayer to do that. I just don't want to see it on Facebook. All right. And that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening, everybody, to the ZabeCast. Please tell two friends. As always, you can reach me at Zabe at Yahoo.com, on Twitter at Zabe, and, of course, Zabe.com for additional content, including my post today about NFL primetime and the glorious return of Boomer and TJ yesterday, which I think we'll talk about tomorrow here on the ZabeCast a bit more in detail. Thank you for listening, everybody, and we will see you next time.